Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Adam and Nick, and we're going to talk about the episode Robot, a very early Doctor Who episode from 1974 starring the Tom Baker Doctor. And before we begin, though, uh, Nick has a, a Doctor Who project that he's working on that's coming out very soon that, uh, that he wants to share with people. So, Nick, do you want to tell us about the book that you have coming out? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a, a project that's been going on for quite a while, actually, um, and has been with a, a great team of people. We've been working on this book realistically for about 10 years, so it's not a small project in, in any means. Um, and the book that I'm talking about is uh, Red, White, and Who, the story of Doctor Who in America. And I'm fortunate to be one of the uh, six co-authors on this book. It was a pretty huge undertaking, and I really want to make sure I give a shout-out to everyone. Um, the other co-authors were uh, Jennifer Adams Kelly and Robert Warnock, uh, and also Janine Fennick and John LaValle. And John LaValle specifically did a lot of our uh, librarianship and research work on that. Um, but the very first name that's on the book is Stephen Warren Hill. And Stephen uh, has done some other books as well. Uh, he did some books on the Universal Monster series, uh, which were, and other horror movies from, uh, from the golden era of, of horror movies, out of uh, which were called Silver Scream. When, so, when, when did he do those books, just out of curiosity? Oh, I want to say, gosh, I don't remember when they were released, but I, I would say probably about seven years ago or so. Okay. And um, the reason I, I wanted to mention Steve, because and the reason Steve's name is first on the book, is mainly because not only did he write a good portion and significant part of the book, but he was also sort of our cheerleader and editor, and assembled all of the parts that all of us worked on and and really did a lot of work and i think if it wasn't for his continually bugging us i think this project would have never finished but let me tell you what it is um red white and who we decided uh many of us are doctor who fans and we sat down and we always said as we shared stories about Doctor Who fandom in America, we said, oh, somebody should write this down. This is a great story. You know what I mean? Like, we shouldn't forget forget about this, you know? Um, before we went on the air, Adam was talking about how he lives in New Jersey, and the New Jersey network out there carries carried, like, a lot of Doctor Who in the 80s. And so, and they did, a, and what's interesting about the New Jersey network is they also did a lot of documentaries about Doctor Who in the 80s. And... You, you know, a lot of the times we would reminisce and go, oh, do you remember when, like, this documentary came on and it was my, maybe the first time somebody saw Patrick Troughton on TV because we had never seen those shows in the 80s. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. We should write that down because that's a great memory of Doctor Who. And after a number of years of saying, hey, we should have that information, the story of Doctor Who in the United States, we should write that down somewhere. We suddenly realized that if we didn't get together and start writing all this stuff down, <laughs> it might never be written down somewhere. Okay. So um, that's kind of how the idea was born, to be honest. So, so, so it's kind of, if, is, am I correct in saying it's kind of like a history of Doctor Who fandom in the United States, but also has like you know uh, anecdotes and stories that people who are involved, uh, you know, in the fan scene are recounting. Well. It's. I would say it's much bigger than that. Okay. Um, um, it's. It's really the full story of Doctor Who in the United States. So we cover everything from like the very first broadcast, mm -hmm. um, the first television station to carry Doctor Who in America, how Time Life got involved and they tried to sell, you know, Doctor Who in the United States. Um, we cover. Like you said, fandom, the growth of mm -hmm. fandom, which really started in the late 70s in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and then grew because of fandom. We cover fanzines, video productions made by fans, uh, attempts to make a licensed animated Doctor Who show here in the United States. Um, there's, you know, history of merchandise, American merchandising and books comic books, games, um, we, we kind of cover it all. Okay. And 
it, it's it's pretty comprehensive, but it's a very easy and fun read because it's kind of a, a cool story. So, no, that sounds interesting. I, I particularly like the uh, the stuff with the air dates and things like that. That's the sort of thing I always kind of wonder about because I, I was born in '76, so I was pretty young in the '80s when a lot of this stuff was airing, and I I I, I remember catching glimpses of like you know. Uh, you know, next on Doctor Who type things and seeing, like, having a vague sense that, oh, they seem to have a new guy playing this role, but I wasn't plugged in by any stretch. And so it's just sort of all vague, a vague mash of of imagery in my mind. And so, you know, I'd kind of like to, to get a better sense of, of you know, what, what I, how many of those memories I have are actually real versus things I just created after the fact. <laughs> I mean, like I have like this very distinct memory of seeing ads of the fifth doctor and, and thinking, Oh, I thought that guy with the curly hair was, was the doctor what's going on. But yeah. maybe I made that up. Do you know what I mean? It's, 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 uh, it's, yeah, the uh, the Doctor Who role playing game was the way I kind of learned about the larger world of Doctor mm-hmm. Who. It's like I, I knew I knew the uh, that the first Doctor I saw was the fifth Doctor when I was briefly in Britain, and then I of course the fourth Doctor was playing in the U.S. And that, that was all I knew. And then a friend of mine bought the role playing game, and I'm reading through the history section. It's like wow, there's <laughs> all this amazing <laughs> stuff here. But yeah, that was my guidebook. Right. Yeah, it was so it was really hard to learn anything back then. Well, and, and one of the neat things about that story, just because you brought up the role playing game, is that we we cover the role playing game in the book because mm-hmm. the role playing game was made in America by FASA, and yeah. there's a story behind it that not a lot of people know. In that Games Workshop in the UK was trying to come out with a Doctor Who role playing game at the same time mm-hmm. that. FASA was trying to make a role-playing game. And so it was unknown to either side. There was this race to get the first Doctor Who role-playing game published. No, correct and me if it was, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't want to interrupt. Oh, it's okay. I was just going to say it was the Americans that got there first, um, just like they did with actual role-playing games. And, and, and that's yeah. not, uh, you know, that's not a judgment in any way, you know, on the UK, but just that it was it was interesting that, at a time when there was this new hobby coming out in the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of people didn't know how to deal with it. And even the BBC wasn't quite sure what exactly a role-playing game was when FASA approached them to say, hey, we've got this idea for a game. Sounds yeah. good. <laughs> okay. So. Yeah. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you, that's the game you run, right? I remember we had a conversation about uh, yes, campaigns yep. and stuff. You run, you run the old FASA Doctor Who or are you using a different system? I I do. Um, there have been three role-playing games for Doctor Who that have come out. The FASA one was the very first one, and I started my campaign in April of 1985, and it still continues to this day. So the super nerd in me has this 31-year-old role-playing campaign that's going on that's still active. We still play about once every week or two. So um, I've had a lot of people come in and out of that campaign, obviously. But... uh yeah, it's it's still something that I do, and that's just it's a passion of mine. I, I obviously wrote that part of the book. I covered I personally covered the game section, mm-hmm. um, just because of my knowledge in that field. But there's so much in it. I don't want I don't want people to think it's only a role playing book. It covers so many other things too. And uh, if you have any love for Doctor Who or any memories, this is like a great book that covers all that. So, but yeah, that's. Where can, I, uh, where can my, people my order My love for it? Doctor Who grew because of role-playing, because I could create my own adventures, so that made it even more exciting to me. So, Where can people order the book? Um, the book is published by ATB Publishing, and they, they're on Facebook. Uh, they're also online, and I highly recommend that they uh, go and do that. Um, the it... ATB Publishing, the, the book actually comes out on the 21st of August this year so august 21st um the day after gen con or the day of the great american solar eclipse if you want to do that but the real reason that we picked that date is because it's the 45th anniversary of the first broadcast of doctor who on an american television channel okay and uh and i have the website up here it's atbpublishing.com and it looks like you can pre-order it now right so 
It's, uh, you absolutely can, and from what I understand, they're running a special where there's free shipping in the U.S. if you uh, pre-order the book now. And the book I know is over 700 pages and includes over 600 color photos on the inside of it. So um, I, I think getting free shipping is a good deal because it uh, comes in as a pretty pretty hefty like little book there. So. Okay, so and we'll put a link in the uh, description below the podcast, and you guys can remind me if I if I neglect sure. to do that. But uh, absolutely. But yeah, no, that's I think that's super cool. That's um, yeah. When you told me about that, I was I was uh, I was, I got pretty interested. Um, yeah, I, I think I think no matter where you are, you'll find something worthwhile in the book. I'll say that. And uh, one other thing that I want to mention is we got very lucky because the foreword of our book is written by Gary Russell. Uh, who, of course, was uh, actually a, a script editor on Doctor Who, and actually, you know, worked on the new series, and has been around Doctor Who fandom for years. And mm-hmm. when he had a chance to read the book, he was quite impressed, and was kind enough to say some nice things, and also write the foreword for us. So, okay, well, that's you know, that's uh, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, Adam, did you have any uh, thoughts before we get into the? Uh, um the the casting of the next doctor no i'm excited about the book actually it's uh i mean like i said as someone that got into it in the 80s it's really interesting to to get more details on the american fandom thing mm-hmm. so yeah well, sounds great but uh well i, I, sh- I should mention one thing because i think this is a, like a great transition point they they just released the trailer like there was a short trailer that they made for the release of the 13th doctor the announcement of the 13th doctor and they, they put the number 13 on a whole bunch of different, like, iconic places in the UK, like the White Cliffs of Dover and, and you know, the, the door of number 10 Downing Street changed to number 13. <laughs> and they, they had the Statue of Liberty, uh, where, where the torch of the Statue of Liberty turns to the number 13. And we were confident that they did that because of our book, because on the cover of our book is the Statue of Liberty. And we're like, oh, dude, they, they knew right <laughs> was coming out, so... Promotional tie-in. <laughs> they, they were hyping it for us, just to let people know that they're saw, American Doctor Who fans. There was so. a whole fan theory that it was because there's an American Doctor. That was the uh, <laughs> it generated oh, yeah. a whole, which I think uh, would have been would have write a sequel book yeah. already. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, so 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 I guess we should get into that now. The um the, the they're going to announce the Doctor. I should say, as we're recording this, they haven't announced it yet. We were we were hoping they would, but apparently tennis matches take a very long time. So. Um, so we won't, we probably won't know who the new doctor is until, you know, a couple of hours after this is, is published. Um, but I don't know who, who are you guys thinking they might, they might cast in the next for the number 13. Well, see my, my feeling is I always like to go with the unknown. It's like, for me, the ideal is someone who's perfect, but I have no idea who they are. That's like, you know, I feel like. Then then the person was like really the doctor for me because it's like that's how I got to know them. It's like, you know, Capaldi was kind of skirting the edge because, you know, I'd I'd seen him in other stuff. I knew who he was. He's he's so good he kind of overcame that. But generally, I I want I want I, I want to be completely surprised. That's actually what I want. But, uh, and Eccleston we'll was kind of known too before. Um, yeah, 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 Eccleston was too. But yeah, Tennant and Smith, I I was completely unfamiliar with, so they they kind of fit that goal. But we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> I I, I think I think it's it's really tough to. It's weird to me that in in the UK there are odds makers and bookies <laughs> who like. Yeah. Who, who, who like people take bets on this like i'm like wow um and, and it's also weird to me some of the names who they have as front runners um and, and stuff like that just because i don't know how anybody would make that call and they keep this all pretty <laughs> also secret right when was so the last Chris time Marshall, a front runner was selected too because i don't i don't think ever I don't think ever, to be honest. Okay, so. yeah, because I feel like every time they every time they've given a list of the people who will be the next two, it's like never any of those people. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. It never is. It never is. And I mean, I, 
I think sometimes they just give us false information because, like, you know, Moffat was going on about how well, I'm going to go with an older doctor at the time he picked Matt Smith. So, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> but also, I think he might have seriously been con- – because didn't he say he was thinking it's of true. Capaldi that time? So, um, Yeah. He did, he did ultimately so, go with I think Capaldi I think Moffat just might be one of these people just says things and then, you know, changes his the, mind a week later. Yeah, he, he doesn't know what he wants. <laughs> but uh... – <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I, yeah I don't I, know. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm with, I'm with uh, Adam. I, I sort of think uh, an unknown is is a good way to go. Though I, I think after the Capaldi run, going with someone who you know can get that, that, um, that gravitas in the, the role and and has the acting chops makes a lot of sense. So, um, so I think a you know sure. a veteran actor could be fine as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, Capaldi, like I said, I knew him from the thick of it, and of course he was on Torchwood. So it's like I he he was known, but he's so good that it's like he overcame the fact that I knew who he was. So I, it's not like I'm going to be angry if they get someone I know, as long as they're good. You know, it's interesting because. We're probably for sure getting a younger doctor, right? Because Capaldi is the oldest by age doc- actor to play the doctor. Mm-hmm. So we we know we're going younger. The question is how much younger, right? <laughs> uh, and, and we could be wrong, right? We don't know for sure we're going younger. But more than likely, um, it, it's interesting to me. And, and just before we started the podcast and before you joined us, we were talking about how fandom is in a really interesting place in which you know, names are put forward and, and people will like complain or champion different actors or actresses, yeah. right? Uh, for, for different reasons saying, well, I think this person would be brilliant or I think this person would, would, would be good. And in my own opinion, I think it's very hard, regardless of who gets announced, to judge them as, in the, as the doctor until they're in the role, right? Because if someone's mm-hmm. a good actor it doesn't matter what role they play if yeah. they can make that role their role. Right. Mm-hmm. So to, exactly. to me, I think it's very unfair for a lot of people to, to try to judge who would or wouldn't be a good actor just because of the other work that they've done. You know, if, if, if all you knew about Peter Capaldi was the thick of it, you'd think that he would be the most foul mouthed, irresponsible, <laughs> like narrow minded doctor that there is. And that's like, not who yeah. we want. Right. So, no, exactly. But yeah, you know, on the topic of, uh, you know, fan based kind of movements, you know, a good a good place where that kind of created an issue, you know, to go to the other famous character that's always played by different actors, you know, James Bond, you know, when when Daniel Craig got picked, there was kind of an Internet movement that, ooh, Daniel Craig would be perfect, you know, that I can remember kind of people pushing for it. At the, at the same time, the people behind the scenes were coming up with this screenplay for Casino Royale where it's like, it's James Bond's first mission, you know, and it's going to be a brand new James Bond, and we're going to see him from the beginning of his career. And it's like, both those things happened. And it's like, that. It Daniel Craig is not the, you know, he's, he's fine as a James Bond, but he is not the person you would pick to be, oh, here's young James Bond getting his start. So you had that weird thing where the internet movement kind of, made the project go off a bit but uh so yeah it could be See, i didn't realize that the internet was involved up. in that one i i could i didn't yeah yeah okay. i can remember i can remember there was some some people definitely pushing for it at the time okay but, i mean i don't i don't know if the internet decided it, but that is that is what they picked so it's, it's well i think if the, likely if the internet were to decide I think we'd be in trouble because we'd have ships named Bodie McBoatface, and yeah. I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fairly confident Mickey Mouse would be our president, but I don't want to say anything about that, so we'll see. Yeah, well, having having fans decide on entertainment is always a bad idea because, to a degree, people want to be surprised. So if you right. if you have people yeah. vote, it it doesn't it doesn't always work. Well, well, you and I have mentioned that, you know, even like when I've got like there have been things that we've wanted in shows that when we get them, we realize, oh, (laughs) we shouldn't have gotten that. That was a bad idea. You know, that's why I'm not writing the show. Good. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, there's like the the, the famous example I always bring up is the the Walking Dead with uh, Rick and Michonne as a couple. Everybody wanted them. I wanted them. I thought it was like it clearly was sort of fated to be and then when it happened it just didn't it just didn't work for whatever reason just the chemistry wasn't there or something at least for yeah. for me and i think for a lot of people um 
And so, uh, you know, sometimes you just, you know, these things, they work as ideas, but there are, I'm sure there are lots of other reasons and, you know, like, you know, the, like how the individual actors will handle things and, uh, and, and whether it mixes with previous storylines and all this stuff, um, that you just don't think of when you're, when you're just kind of commenting from the sidelines, uh. But, yeah, um, well, it's, you know, I can remember there's always been this push since there's been interactive entertainment. Every now and then they have those those people that try and sell a product where it's like you get to choose what happens next in the story, you know, and it's like every attempt like that's fallen flat because people don't want to sit there and go, ooh, I want to decide what happens next. They just want to they want they want to see a good story told. That's what yeah. they want. Well, uh, and, and I think that goes to both the casting and how stories are, are perceived in that I think people want to be as smart as the showrunners or want to be yeah. good enough fans that they know what the right direction for the show was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons that everybody kind of weighs in on things because fandom is this like beautiful celebration of being involved in in the process at a very deep level, more than just casually watching. So if yeah. you can quote-unquote choose the doctor or if you can like figure out that plot hook before it happens that makes it all the more exciting for you it's participatory fandom you know so oh yeah there's a lot of good things to fandom i'm not mm-hmm. I, oh no I, yeah yeah someone someone that someone that, that it's on a podcast talking about every episode of <laughs> doctor who in depth i'm not exactly in a position to go what why don't these people yeah, all yeah. shut up <laughs> well we do like to have it both ways on the podcast you know we like to exactly we like, we like to say exactly. what we want and then we like to complain about people who say what they want so that's the, uh, um but but I think it's also yeah. interesting. You you made you made an interesting point about how even if you even if it's a good actor, you're not necessarily going to get a good doctor. And I was thinking about. I remember when when Capaldi was taking on the role. I was you could kind of see him like making the choices to sort of figure out who the doctor was. And mm-hmm. and I realized it can come down to like if he if the actor just makes a bad choice for how you know. And I don't know. Maybe there's there's also probably people speaking in the doctor's ear telling him how, you know what to do. But 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 but. You know, just a a bad uh, idea of how how I should play the doctor could could result in a bad performance for for three three years. So yeah, um, well, you know, it's interesting you say that because Peter Capaldi was able to do what uh, Colin Baker as the sixth Doctor was never allowed to do. So when Colin Baker was introduced, um, the idea was that he was supposed to be very much like William Hartnell, unlikable, very irritable. And they had a three-year plan for his doctor in which he lightened his mood and was nicer to Perry and things like that. And by his third year, he was supposed to become, like, really nice and likable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the BBC, you know, Colin Baker, you know, was in the the last story of, you know, of one season and then only lasted two seasons. So that character development never worked for him because he never was able to see it through. There's a, a weird jump between his first full season and then his second, The Trial of a Time Lord, in which he's suddenly nicer to Perry. And we, but we don't see that natural development happen. Yeah. But we did see that with Capaldi, because Capaldi had the full three years. You know, he starts, he's kind of, like, mean. He's not nice. He's not nice to Clara's boyfriend, yep. you know. And we now have him being the super friendly, helping Bill out, teaching her, like, the development really changed for him, so I think that was a, a a huge plus. And it's interesting that sometimes characters and actors need time in order to find their best work in a certain character. No, I would agree with that. I mean, I, that's one of the things I liked about Capaldi is that 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 transition over time with the character, and he really did start out. Um, you know, I mean, I know I, I remember you know speaking of the internet. A lot of people were mad when he first showed up because he was kind of mean. And, <laughs> and I remember seeing a lot of posts from people who were like, well, I just don't go. You know, that's not what I watched Doctor Who for. And that was, yeah. you know, they, were, they were done with Doctor Who with that. And I found it, I found it a little refreshing because I, I liked Matt Smith and I liked Tennant. But sometimes they, they were on this trajectory. And I think they even kind of got meta with it where they, they pointed it out in the 50th anniversary episode where they, you know, the, the war doctors, like you guys are both talking like children. And, <laughs> and you know, so there was, there, that was, there was no real, real area to go there anymore anyway. So I, you know, I liked that they 
you know, I liked the older doctor. I liked that he had that edge to him and he was a, you know, a little bit irritable that that sort of worked. And then, you know, he did. He did, It's kind of and I think it's I think it's also a very universal experience. We've all had that sort of or most of us have had, I think, a, an older relative or a grandfather figure in our lives who when you initially start getting to know them are incredibly difficult and and not mm-hmm. easy to get along with. But then the more they warm up to you, even if you're their own grandchild, they 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 become more friendly. You know, you soften them up and they also get more used to you. And I think that's the experience that you sort of had with the Capaldi doctor. And I'm going back and I've been watching some of the the first doctor episodes and it's very much what was going on with him. And it's one of the charming things about the first doctor. So mm-hmm. mm. Yeah, now you've got a good point there. It's uh, yeah, it's it it. it it's, I mean, a lot of people too were upset about the fact too that you know you had all the, you know, the 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 Tennant Smith fans that were into them because they were younger, attractive actors too, and they they were really unhappy about Capaldi too, just because it's like oh this, this is a whole different direction for the show. They weren't they weren't used to that as being part of Doctor Who if they'd never seen the old series. So, okay. Okay, I mean, yeah. I guess that that I, makes sense, and I and I was, I mean, I'm somebody who really came on with the, with 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 new who, so I just I just yeah. um, well, but I have a I have a question actually, just because I think you made a really great point, right, and uh, about Adam, and I didn't mean to cut you off, um, but you know, certain people watch because you know, oh hey, that was a really attractive actor or sure. whatever the case might be, or the companion. So we have a situation now where. Within the reality of Doc, within the fiction, I'm sorry, of Doctor Who, right? The the Doctor can easily change gender, or change mm-hmm. skin color, or change whatever they want, really, right? Yeah. So now we have a lot of different people who are looking for different things from the Doctor. I, I have a number of friends who are like, "Oh my gosh, I've been waiting for this forever. I want a woman Doctor, right?" Yeah. And. Yeah. And and then I know other people who are like, I don't know if I'll keep watching the show if it's a woman doctor. <laughs> like the dynamic is going to completely change of how I perceive this. Yeah. And so I, I find I find it interesting that what, when we talk about younger people saying, well, you know, they only watched it because they were like, you know, there was a young, attractive doctor. I, I don't know if, if older fans are any more or less immune to that oh, kind of thinking. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Because it's... <laughs> You know, it's it's funny because uh, it to tie us into a role playing game thing here. It's like with role playing game editions. You know, you kind of have those edition wars, and there's a new edition of a role playing game. And the more editions you have, the more edition factions you have. If this was the best edition, and this isn't, so it's like the more doctors you have, the more people. The more the more ideal doctors there are for different people, and the more they're like, I want a doctor like this one, and I want one like this one. Mm-hmm. So every single time there's a new doctor, you've got you know more of a chance for it to be divisive when the new one comes well, out. And I, th- I think you made a, a good point because it, it's kind of easy to 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 be dismissive. They sometimes I think they call them the Matt Smith fan girls. The you know sort of the people that are maybe. You know, they, one of the things that this draws them to the show is that they have these these handsome uh, actors playing Doctor mm-hmm. Who. But we haven't had a female Doctor, so we haven't. We, you know, th- that could just as you know, if it, you know, if it were an attractive female Doctor, maybe we'd be feeling the same way if it was suddenly replaced with a, you know, a less attractive female Doctor. So I think it's a, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's a little bit of an easy dismissal to make, probably of. Oh. Um, and I, I don't really consider it a dismissal. It's like people watch shows for different reasons. If yeah. someone's watching a show just because they think the doctor's cute, that's valid. I mean, yeah. I, it's Absolutely. not why I watch the show, but I don't have an issue with that. But it's, I'm just bringing up the the fact that it, it does it does create an issue. You know, when uh when they cast a new doctor, you've got to contend <laughs> with that. But it's like, yeah, I've I've watched shows purely because I find someone in it attractive. That's I can't can't knock anyone for that. Now, how, how far I, we got to get to the, the robot episode soon? But how far do you think they can take pushing the doctor into territory of being unlikable, unattractive, just on a like how like because I and, I and I say this because because the you know the the, the Valyard is gonna have to come up at some point and I'm just curious how they're gonna handle that and and I'm wondering you know would they would they be able to actually do it so that we get an incarnation of the doctor that is the Valyard itself or would they have to do it so that if they do the Valyard storyline 
the Valyard is this other thing going on in the side, but you still have the the heroic Doctor uh, that's you know likable in some way. I, I I don't I don't think they would cast the Valyard Doctor in the sense of like trying to. I, I think that that as a storyline, the Valyard is all the evil that's pulled out of the Doctor from between his twelfth and final regeneration. I I, per, I don't perceive him as being a doctor per se, as much as I do a convenient, the time Lords, you know, mid generation regeneration or something pulled part of the doctor's essence out and split them off or something like that. I don't think we'll, we'll see that. Um, I know, I know what you're saying. There's no reason you couldn't do that though. But I, I think that coming off of a, 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 a rougher doctor, I'll say like Capaldi, right. Who might not be the most, you know, it's it's hard to turn on one single episode of Capaldi and go, hey, I need to start watching this show. I think, you know, he, he kept a lot of fans. I think you had to watch the right episodes to see him at his best. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think they, I suspect they're going to go for a more lighthearted, like we said earlier, mm-hmm. more childlike, happy-go-lucky doctor. I think that would be the right direction for them to go now. That's just my thought. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I think to an extent, the fact that the Valyard calls himself the Valyard, they've kind of set a precedent already where it's like the the war doctor didn't really think of himself as the doctor. And so we skipped him. We didn't actually, I mean, you know, we kind of had an appearance by yeah. him, but we didn't, we didn't have like a season of the war doctor because he wasn't the, the doctor. He was an incarnation yeah. of the same character, but not, the show's about the doctor. So if you have an incarnation that's the Valyard, he... You know, it's okay to skip him. They can skip him because they've set that precedent already. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, I was just I was yeah. just curious if they would. Uh... Oh, it's a good question. It's a good question. I I think yep. though it's uh, yeah. I think I think probably Capaldi's as dark as you can really go and uh and still have it be the same show. <laughs> and uh, I mean. And so and so you know we uh, we've we've actually been going on for a while on this one so i'm going to shift it to the yeah. to the to the robot episode um we uh, you know, uh, we, uh which, oh. which is a great transition because it's the yeah. first episode of the fourth doctor right so <laughs> exactly. yes that was one of the things i really liked about it now this was obviously my first time seeing it i think you guys had both seen this before so oh yeah um uh, but this is the episode Robot, which is Tom Baker's first episode, and it aired originally between 1974 and 75. And uh, it's—I uh, I, guess—I guess my really crappy synopsis of it is it's about evil scientists and a melodramatic robot that is uh, <laughs> is, is is given conflicting commands uh, and and has and and kind of has a meltdown. Um, and and it's a really great Sarah Jane episode. I I was um, uh, I I I thought that uh that you know, I I I've seen some of the episodes with her in them, but I but this was one where they really kind of highlight her her reporting and things like that. So it was, mm-hmm. it was it was nice to see that. But um, but I you guys are the experts. So I'll let you guys weigh in on uh on this one first. Okay. Um... Well, I, you know, I'll I'll say this. One thing that's important to know when you start this storyline for most people is that John Pertwee, who had played the Doctor for five years before this, was most most of his tenure stuck on Earth and worked with the Brigadier and the members of UNIT. And it was like with the introduction of the fourth Doctor, they were going to start having the Doctor travel again. Mm. But they needed to have a transition story, which still included the Brigadier and UNIT which still included the companion that they had at the time, Sarah Jane, and Sarah Jane was a reporter. And so I felt that this was an amazingly great transition story mm-hmm. between the two because it still included Unit. It still included the fourth Doctor doing his thing with Unit. And like you said, it was a great showcase for Sarah Jane um, in which she is legitimately doing investigative reporting. And I'll even say the kind of investigative reporting I wish more modern reporters would do where they, where they bust into top secret facilities and sneak into places and get the real deal. And, you know, like, you know, as I, I think we need more Sarah Jane Smith's in real life. So, 
Yeah, it's. I agree with you on all those points. I mean, it's it's impressive the way it's a good introduction to this doctor, and it's also part of the same show that had been going on at that point. It like gets both things right because it's like on one level you could look at if you if you looked at the episode you might think oh this is like they used the script that was left over from the previous doctor, but it still has it's the fourth doctor is written well enough as being the fourth doctor that he is an element that feels completely new in it. And, uh, yeah, and I, I agree. I agree. It's a good Sarah Jane episode. She, uh, she, she gets a lot to do. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think the two episodes we've, we've watched previously with her haven't been the greatest. They've been good at really good episodes, but they haven't, haven't, haven't given her as much to do. And, uh, but yeah, you get to see her in her element this time. There was there was an element in this story in Robot that I thought was really interesting. And that is that very rarely do you see scientists as both good guys and bad guys. And what I mm-hmm. mean by that is um, we're introduced to the think tank and then we discover that some of the people who are involved in the think tank have government ambition right so like you know there's a scientific reform society that thinks that scientists being smarter than everyone else should rule and and make the decisions of the population and it's interesting to me only because like this past year we've had the like the march for science and we actually see more scientists unhappy with our current political system saying Uh oh i think i should run for political office yeah and what's interesting about this story is here you have a case where now the scientists think that they're only right, right? So like, yeah, you know, and and, and they're they're extreme, and and it's interesting because you don't see too many scientists who are, you know, and I'll I'll use the word Nazi like because obviously the 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 scientific reform society in the episode robot are very authoritarian and very you know the black uniforms and a crazy logo that looks almost like a warped swastika and stuff so i I just think it's interesting to see usually scientists aren't super organized and trying to have a say in how society works but we're seeing a little bit of that for good or worse like you know in our real society And, and and this i think is a good warning that you shouldn't only consider science actually so yeah, it's 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 a complicated thing. I I can remember there were some story science fiction stories in the fifties and sixties that kind of dealt with the same idea of scientists who always thought scientists should be running everything. Like, uh, well, going back uh, to Frankenstein, you know, it can. You know, oh, that's that, true. That's the... Yeah, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, Aristotle and the gun was another one. I, I can't remember who wrote that. It was a really famous science fiction writer. But I'll come back to that. But. Uh, the, uh, but yeah, I, I liked I liked the idea in there. Another interesting thing in the background that people that didn't watch the previous Doctor wouldn't be aware of is that it's not actually set in the then modern day. It's actually set in the 1980s. <laughs> so it's set. It's actually set in the future, the near future. And and that but, actually uh, completely went over my head watching it because the, it, the only yeah the only line that tips you off is them talking about back during the Cold War. Is okay, the Cold okay. War is uh-huh. over. That's why. That's why all the codes are shared. Okay. And everything, but, every, but you see, all like, the, all like a modern audience isn't even going to catch that because because to us the Cold War is over. So I know. You know I know. It's not even going to occur. I mean, it, you know, obviously it's 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 anachronistic if you're thinking this is occurring in the in the seven but even if it was occurring in the eight, the cold war was still going on in the 80s so um. exactly so it's but yeah it was an interesting point that that line jumped out at me i was like oh yeah this is really the 1980s uh, That's the doctor who universe and so yeah <laughs> so I, i'm curious on your take because this is the the introduction to tom baker how you guys felt his introduction went as introductions go for the doctor wow um I, i'll say this i don't think you could establish a character in five minutes faster than Tom Baker does when, when he walks out of the TARDIS and he's changing outfits and is, is playing both his like what do you mean these clothes aren't good enough and you know being wacky but also being inquisitive and then you know walking out and saying like hey we can't hang around here too long we have to like chop chop well, get to he, it you know and he like, does it right when he gets the the right al- outfit on which is pretty yeah. cool it's like it, it just <laughs> yep. flicks a switch off in his head 
<laughs> I found oh. it. But yeah, yeah, the whole uh, yep. the whole the whole scene where he's uh, trying to prove that he's in good physical health too, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. I love the transition from the jump rope. Then it comes back later, and he's like tied him up in the closet with the jump rope. That's a mm-hmm. that's that's just a great bit of comedy there. But yeah, Absolutely. it's perfect. You really. You really couldn't have a better introduction to the fourth doctor than this episode. And I, well, and, and I think I think he also nails it in the writer nails it for him. You know, mm-hmm. depending on who had what to say with with Tom Baker looking at you know like the, I think it's the brigadier and Harry Sullivan are looking at the fence or or something like that, and they're trying to figure out what broke through the fence, and the doctor is way off in the distance. And, you know, crouching down and people are like, you know, doctor, why aren't you looking at this? And he holds up like the dandelion, you know, and yeah. says, look at this dandelion. What does this tell you? And they're like, there's flowers here. You know, like, <laughs> it's like it's been crushed. This thing has to weigh at least a ton, you know. Yeah. And so I, I love the whole idea of him seeing all of the clues that the average person doesn't see. And to me, a, a Robot was one of the earliest stories that I saw when I became a fan and to me, that nailed the Doctor as this smart, inquisitive, Sherlock Holmes-type character that sees the things that other people don't. So mm-hmm. so what did you think of it as someone watching it for the first time, Brandon? That's, uh... I, I really liked the episode. So the, the first thing, whenever I watch these classic episodes, I'm reminded of when I first saw I, Claudius, or any of these older programs from the 70s, even when I was a kid, where... Um, Today, a lot of shows, even Doctor Who, they're all very quickly edited. The there's 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 um there's like fifty cameras. It seems like at times, you know, there's just there's just all these different techniques that go into things. And sometimes the actors get lost in all of that editing and all of the sort of stylistic cutscenes. And instead, you have these really pro- protracted performances that just the camera lingers on them and they can't really escape from it. And you see, you see all of the good and all of the bad in the performance, and I really like that. Um, so that doesn't yeah. have anything particular to do with this episode, except for Tom Baker's performance. But I was really noticing it during the the, the scene where he's changing the clothes and all that. And, you know, it, it's it's not something that you would see on TV today, and it's it's a little bit refreshing. But in terms of the storyline, yeah, I, I loved the <laughs> I loved the evil scientists. I thought that the woman who played, um, I think her name was Miss Winters. She was mm-hmm. outstanding, and it was kind of easy to miss. Like, you didn't realize how great of a villain she was until maybe midway yeah. through. Uh, but I really liked her, and she it was like this combination of, of sinister and smart, and it just worked. And uh, I, I also... I liked the robot. It was very cheesy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. again, it kind of... I think it's it set off enough nostalgia buttons for me for programs I remember from the '70s that featured robots and that kind of you know that kind of technology where it's basically a guy in a suit with with um, <laughs> the shoulder pads really stuck. Out of the, <laughs> there, there was there were there were features of the robot suit that really stuck out. But what I liked about it was the robot. He he had a robot voice, but he was really emotional. And, yeah, and yeah. and okay. some of the lines were pretty cheesy. Like there was one line where he says, "Oh, I killed the one who created me," and then he fell over. <laughs> uh, but but it's stuff that I don't know. I, I like those. It's it's good cheese. Mm-hmm. It's good. It's yeah, good sort of corny it science fiction stuff. And uh, but also underlying it was a real like it was corny, but there was a relationship between him and Sarah Jane that really worked. And mm-hmm. and I and I, I like that part of the of the episode. I liked that the that the robot wasn't really bad. The robot was just dealing with the fact that he was being given these instructions that were going against his. I I, I think it was prime directive. I forget what they called it, but they had a word for it. He, mm-hmm. had, he had some like 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 piece of code that he wasn't supposed to break, and it, it basically was you know don't hurt mankind. And they're telling him to go and kill people. So he's having this this internal crisis. Um, and I liked that the. And again, this is going to be a spoiler, but the episode is like forty something years old or whatever. So, um, but but I liked that the ma- the, the the main evil scientist, uh, uh, Professor Kettlewell, is initially presented as sort of a, a, a an old man who's just a good guy who's in a bad situation. He made the robot and he cares about the robot, but really he's he's also one of the conspirators. And I, I liked mm-hmm. I liked that reveal. 
And I like that when they reveal it, he's still the same character. He's still kind the dynamic between him and the other two scientists remained. It wasn't like he suddenly becomes this big evil badass. Um, yeah. But but he was but he was tricking the the audience and the doctor the whole time. So yeah, I, yeah. Well, uh, his his evil side was grounded in his good points because he's just he was just frustrated with people don't care about the environment and stuff. And it's like he he really was rooted in all these good concerns that kind of allowed him to work with yeah, the, with the with the villains. And it was so. funny too because his whole thing is he was trying to create alternative energy sources. That was like his main yeah. um, his main <laughs> yeah, scientific exactly. objective. So it was So it made sense. And and I, so. it was funny because they're they're basically um I guess they're they're a very early sort of eco terrorist organization would be the um and and so yeah. it was uh it was it was I thought it was a it was a cool it was a cool uh you know a cool cool episode um i wouldn't say i wouldn't say it was as good as uh i think it was the ark in space was the the other one that we did and the genesis of the daleks those mm-hmm. ones i probably enjoyed more but it also had a lot of elements of genesis of the daleks like i feel like in a way genesis of the daleks is foreshadowed by some of the stuff going on here yeah, well, you you know, talking about the scientists, good and bad scientists too. You have that element in Genesis of the Daleks too, where you have the the one scientist who's trying to help them out and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's it's it is very similar in a lot of ways. But uh, you know, there's 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 some interesting things about New Who that come back to this story because in this story. Uh, the doctor uses Kettlewell's anti-metal formula or whatever it is to help defeat the runaway K1 robot, you know, later in the story, near the end of the story, right? And so he uses his, his you know, what anti I can't remember exactly what they call it. Was it was like anti-metal virus, I think it was Yeah, called. exactly. So, and to me it's interesting because in the very first story of Christopher Eccleston in the story Rose... The doctor's anti-plastic, right? To to uh, to, yeah. to, oh, yeah. to to warn to, to to fight the like the nestine consciousness, and the autons. And it's interesting because a lot of people would go like, "Okay, is anti-plastic? Where would that come from?" And then you come back to this story, you know, robot, and you're like, <laughs> "Oh, he's got anti-metal virus." Okay, so like, uh, yeah. kind of an interesting throwback, you know, between those stories. Well, and also his the robot's name is K one, right? So I, I'm assuming he's connected to K nine. That the um... whoa, I didn't even pick I, up on that. You know, I, I, I wouldn't know. say that that was intentional because K <laughs> nine is created by Professor Marius in a different story. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, and K nine being a play on the word K nine, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think people do see the K1 and kind of go like, I think that's one of those things that got retconned into like Doctor Who fandom where people are like, Hey, you know, okay. Like, yeah. And I don't know. know the, the original K9 storyline. So, you know, I, 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 they reintroduced him in the new who, and I, I think I've seen an episode or two where he appears, but I don't know anything about his origins, but I saw the K1. Uh-huh. I was like, Oh, is that, is that like, you know, is there a K2, a K3, you know, they get to the K9 and they, they just happen to make him a dog. Um, mm. But yeah, I built up this whole mythology in my head as I was watching it. Um, sure. But I, also, it reminded me a lot of like Asimov. You know, there's that, you know, the, 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 the three laws of robotics and all that. So I just felt it was like good, you know, good, solid, you know, science fiction stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I'm curious, uh, you know, Nick, do you know how well this episode is generally received by people? Like, is it a... Um, is it's, it... it's it's considered a, a, a fairly good story. It's mm-hmm. very often considered one of the best introductions of a Doctor. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's one of the stronger first stories for any of the Doctors. And I think that's because Tom Baker's uh, portrayal of the Doctor doesn't waver that much from his introduction in this story right you know i think you know we talked earlier in the podcast about how some characters take time to to grow or some actors need to grow into a role i think tom baker owned the role from this story forward and i think that's like great um i I do think that you know the story comes under a little bit of criticism every now and then and i think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about you know the the king kong like Sarah Jane yeah. Doll being carried carried by the K one robot. I mean, like you can literally see that's like a Barbie doll being yeah. carried by <laughs> by the robot. And 
you know, to me, I love that only as a fan of like older television and, yeah. and realizing that that's a cheat and like I can suspend my disbelief and they try to cut to close ups of, of, you know, you know, Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane to, to fool you. But I mean, our eye now in the modern day catches that so quickly yeah. as opposed to how they could kind of hide that or the, or the tank that's clearly yeah. like a model <laughs> tank shot in the foreground. Well, I like, you know, I would, yeah. On set, tank. like they literally like pushed this tank out while there were actors like, you know, 50 yards away in perspective, you know, and so. Yeah, I like I like the way the fence, the fence, like when the tank disappears, there's that fence there that gives away the perspective completely. It's like if that fence wasn't there, it might almost fool you, but it's like that fence is, is like in the background and as tall as the tank, and it's like, no, that, 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 that doesn't work. Uh, yeah, I but I gotta say we talked about the robot earlier, and I I really like that robot suit though. That is that is just a fantastic robot suit. Mm-hmm. That is it just, and, I mean and, it is cheesy, but it, it just the way it moves and everything was great. And the the, the way the guy got got the emotion out of it, his arms whenever he get emotional, he's like oh waving yeah. his arms around. And, and, and I think the performance might like I don't know like maybe like it might be a generational thing because I think a lot of the things we're talking about like the. The, the special <laughs> effects and stuff like that. Like, it, I, I remember putting up with, with enough terrible special effects as a kid that you just, you kind of use your imagination to bridge the yeah. gap. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of like that. So it doesn't bother me. But I could imagine that if you've grown up on CG, this might be, it might be like when I saw, you know, my first silent film or something. You know, it's that, it's that, <laughs> that big sort of, whoa, this is different than how we do things. Um, yeah. There's, but, there's, there's one thing in the in the K1 robot design that I think needs to be celebrated because it's a very minor thing that I think really brings home the robot being a robot. And that is that while it's clear to us that it's a guy in the suit, the fact that the hands are a claw that's connected to like a single rod, which <laughs> is then operated by the guy inside the suit, I think those, those like claw-like hands that stick out really actually sell the robot as a robot because you're like well at least they made an effort that the claw works as a real claw (laughs) that's true that's true and i remember as a kid having tons of toys of robots that had those i don't know what you would call them but those arms that are like uh they look like an an exhaust vent from a um uh, a laundry machine or something like those uh-huh. flexible exhaust vents. Um, but that, you know, it, it's not really the aesthetic anymore, but it, it I, I consider it's, it's, it's a pretty classic looking robot to me, uh, yep. as cheesy as it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, I guess the part where it does, you, you know, cause the, the whole thing is he can grow, the metal can grow. And it's an interesting uh-huh. threat that I think is kind of looming in the episode, <laughs> Uh, but I almost feel like the episode, like personally, I feel like the episode didn't really need that. Like the, 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 I, I thought ending it somehow with, with him and Sarah Jane would have, would have been just as, just as workable there. But I didn't mind the King yeah. Kong stuff. Um, yeah, it, 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 it did feel like, to an extent, I, I kind of felt like having, having the robot suddenly himself destroy, decide he's going to destroy all humanity was just kind of, a, I was like, it felt a little, a little much. I mean, I enjoyed the episode, but it just, I, I didn't, didn't quite get, get the job. It's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's a big thing in a lot of movies and things where it's like suddenly the villain decides, I must destroy the world, and it's like, well, I don't know why he decided that. <laughs> but, but just, to, just, just to raise the stakes a little. But uh, yeah, because it's not—it's not like it's not like it was ever really the goal of the organization to destroy the world. That was just a threat they were kind of leveraging, that they didn't actually particularly want to do. But I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I think the idea there was that um, you know, when he killed the uh, the, the scientist that made him, that's sort of what set him. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. That's true. It. Uh, it did, I, did get prompted by that, and, and I was a little unclear on what the organ because I know they were using that as like a um, like that was sort of like we're going to blow up the world if we don't get what we want. But also the woman seemed kind of pretty bent on that path. Like it didn't seem like she was too troubled True. by the, the the destruction of the world. 
Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, she's an interesting character too because it it feels like you know this organization kind of started with this this goal of like, hey, we want we want scientists in charge because they're rational. She kind of feels almost like. She's this kind of bullying character who kind of got control of the movement, and you know, and it's like yeah. she doesn't she doesn't seem to care about the ideals as much as she's kind of got taken this so, thing and is writing it, you know. Though though the, they did very clearly state what their uh, philosophy was early on in the episode when mm-hmm. Sarah Jane went there, they 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 were pretty. I don't know what the word would be, but they they were pretty um, pretty arrogant, um, and it kind of yeah. it kind of had a it was kind of like a. Like a little bit, it almost had like a Plato's Republic sort of mentality <laughs> sort of brewing under it. Um, but but I just loved it that how unapolog- I forget I don't even think the character had a name, but she was speaking to the guy behind the desk, and he was just so un- unapologetic about how how much he looked down on her. Um, yeah, and, you know, you yeah. wouldn't even be wearing those clothes. Like it was that was that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if if I had my say, you'd be wearing something much. You know, like whatever. I don't know what it was he wanted her to wear. But probably, probably like a gray jumpsuit or something practical. I don't know. But, <laughs> right. Uh. Well, there's there's a really cool scene of when Sarah Jane first meets Miss Winters, which I think is great. Where Sarah Jane was always perceived in the show as being very, you know, pro women's liberation and 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 feminist, and she goes and meets the scientists originally, meets Jellico and mm. Winters. And she says, like, oh, you know, nice nice to meet you, director. And Miss Winters says, well, I would have never expected sexism out of you, Sarah Jane Smith. I'm the director, not this other guy. <laughs> and it's you funny because like... back then they called it male chauvinism. So it, so it has yep. – and, uh, and, and you, you, it's easy to forget, you know, that, that, that uh, the, 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 the history and how, how this stuff was already, you know uh, – becoming relevant in in movies and shows in that time um absolutely so yeah i thought that i thought that was an interesting moment too uh yeah yeah <laughs> but, I, I also think you know where, where that it's interesting that you we said just a minute ago that the scientists didn't mind blowing up the world but I, I kind of feel like the scientists felt that they would be the only ones able to survive if the world got that, blown up. That's right? true. It wasn't it wasn't right? totally self destructive because they had a bunker and right and so yeah I guess yeah that's true. There, well, the question is, was any did they establish anyone else was in the bunker with them or they or? Well, I, just... I think they tried to say that that we would we our their plan was that we will go to the bunker when this happens. Uh-huh. But then when the plan starts to unfold, there's only two of them in the bunker, so they didn't that's, call it buddies. Like, also, yeah, I think there's a good chance there question. are other bunkers throughout the world because they did say they had agents. But that's I find, true. I find that's with true. these older shows that the, you, you, the number of people that are present at a given facility is always very <laughs> sort of amorphous. And sometimes you'll be watching a show and it'll look like there are two people, and then... You know, for no explainable reason, there are somehow 12 people there. There are, you know, 500. Oh, yeah. You never that's, really know what the I, real numbers are. That, that's why I asked her, did they establish it? Because from a standpoint, I know from a budgetary standpoint, there's only going to be the two people because <laughs> yeah. that's what they can but, afford. But it's like, did, did they make a statement about our people are in the bunker with, you know? <laughs> I don't know, but I know when the robot had Sarah Jane in there, he said, don't worry, Sarah Jane, you'll survive. You know, you'll be the only survivor or something. And, yeah, and he was yeah. then going to like build a, a civilization of robots, um, you know, <laughs> which I thought was kind of an interesting idea for a movie. Um, you know, like, uh-huh. like I, I was kind of thinking, you know, oh, what if, what if, what if he did, you know, blow up the world and it was just him and Sarah Jane? That would make for like an interesting <laughs> The series should have gone that way. <laughs> yeah, that would have been, right? That would have been, yeah, you can't really go back from that. That's a... it, it still can, right? Go to the alternate universe. That's the beauty of Doctor Who. So. Yeah, I could, I could write go. my, I could write my K1 Sarah Jane fan fiction and, and post it online. <laughs> Fan, fan fiction is a very interesting thing. I, I, it, it, in the in the Wuxia fan community, there are people that write Wuxia fan stories, and so it's 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 interesting to see sort of you know where people go when they when they when they have total freedom to take the characters wherever. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, so so I don't know. So uh, we've been we've been going on for about an hour, so I'm going to end the episode shortly. But did you guys have any other thoughts about this one that you wanted to to mention before we? Before we end it, 
Well, I'll I'll say this, and that is that a lot of the times when people have had their fill of like modern Doctor Who, you know, they've caught up on all of it. And then they wonder, like, hey, where would be a great place to go back and watch some classic Doctor Who? Um, you know, and, and some people think, oh, maybe I should go all the way back to the first Doctor, and I personally wouldn't recommend that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think going back to Robot and starting with the fourth Doctor would be a great place for somebody to catch up on older Doctor Who and get a feel of what the show was like. And yeah. I, I think it, it's it's a great start. And once you watch this story, I think you know what you're getting. And it's followed, as, as we're covering right now, by some amazing stories that mm-hmm. I think uh, it'd be a great place for a fan to go back to if they wanted to watch some classics. I would start at Robot, maybe. Yeah, another another good point of starting there, too, is if you're interested in the Brigadier and Unit, too, you get a taste of that. So then you, you're getting basically a taste of what the show was like during during yeah. the second, uh, the third Doctor, as well as getting a taste of going forward with the fourth Doctor. So you're kind of mm-hmm. getting a... Yeah. two things going on at once but I'm, yeah it's 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 a it is where i would recommend starting i'm finding that this is working well for me because um going back to this doctor i'm familiar with him just from the fact that he was on the tv when we were when i was a kid and so you know the face i recognize and occasionally i'll, I'll you know i must have seen enough of it that when i every once in a while i'll see a scene or something that i think i might have seen when i was a kid so it's mm-hmm. it's it's familiar and it's filling in like memory gaps that 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 you have as a child if you if, if this was playing in the background or something when you were like seven, um, and so so I, I think it works for that reason. I think it's also really good storylines. And what I've been doing is I've been you know we've been like going back and watching these Tom Baker episodes and I've been enjoying them a lot. But it's also kind of like Adam said, like you get a taste of the third Doctor, so then you feel comfortable enough to go back and watch some of the third Doctor episodes and. Um, and I've done, you know, I've gone back and watched some of the first doctor and, and, you know, you know, and, and what I, what I've been doing there is I've just been picking key episodes that are, I find that if I have the interest in the episode, it's, it, 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 it gets me more amped up to watch it. So if there's something mm-hmm. going on in new who that connects to an old episode, I'm more, I'm more excited about going and watching that episode. And now that I'm watching these Tom Baker episodes or something crops up. I'm like, oh, I want to go find out more about that storyline, so I'm going to go back and watch that, you know, that episode if I can, if I can find it. Um, so, so yeah, I, th- I think, I think, I think this, this is definitely working for me. So I think you're right about that. Um, so yeah, so oh, and why don't we mention your book one more time before we go? Because I don't want people to forget the uh, the name and where to get it from. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, the book is called Red, White, and Who: The Story of Doctor Who in America. And it's an overview of all of uh, the American experience with Doctor Who. And it's from ATB Publishing, which is ATB, atbpublishing.com. And you can uh, actually get free shipping if you pre-order the book. And it's going to come out on uh, August 21st. Okay, so we'll, we'll end it there. And I'm going to post a link to that below. And we'll be back. Uh, actually, tomorrow uh, we're going to do a Web of Death discussion which I'm really looking forward to. Web of Death is a classic uh, Choi Yuen yeah. wuxia film that is uh, yeah. just has to be seen to be believed. And, uh, I will second that. <laughs> and, uh, and then we're going to be doing... Um, oh, God, I can't remember. I know I'm doing another 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 wuxia movie on, on Friday, but uh, the, the name of it is escaping me at the moment. And, uh, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>